Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second series of The Human Podcast a place to hear extraordinary human stories that celebrate the limitless potential of human beings. This second series is dedicated to our very human stories of grief and loss, because when you dig down into the core matter of these experiences, what you actually discover is possibly our most unobserved and uncelebrated capacity for courage, resilience and love. Grief requires an expansiveness of self that stretches us to a fourth dimension the extraordinary thing is that we can contain it, live with it, and that somehow the human heart can hold it all. So if the world is feeling like a dark or difficult place, join us and let your heart be ignited by the fire of the human spirit. Hello everybody, so today I am just truly honoured to be in conversation with Ben Brooks Dutton, Sunday Times best-selling author of It's Not Raiding Daddy It's Happy, award-winning blogger of Life as a Widower and chair of the Life Matters Task Force for Bereaved Families in the UK. Ben's story is one which ignited the hearts of this nation back in November 2012 when his exquisite wife Desreen and mother to their two-year-old son was killed by a speeding car whilst they were walking home together from a perfect, blissfully happy Saturday afternoon with best friends. It was an event of such inexplicable tragedy that it could feel hard to come to terms with a world in which something so randomly devastating could possibly happen. Ben's story is one which pushes the vessel of our human capacity to hold and endure the shock agony, acceptance and recovery from loss to its limits and consequently what his story reveals is one of the most courageous stories of grief I've been privileged to hear. His story is not only one of his own courage to live fiercely alongside his grief but his story also leads us to that of his gorgeous brilliant son Jackson who lost the person he loved most before he had the language to express it. Within a couple of months of Desreen's passing, Ben got to work, putting his story to the service of others through his hugely popular blog, Life as a Widower, which was followed and read by millions of people all over the world. And as we're in conversation today, it's almost eight years to the day that Desreen was killed. And in Ben's words, in these more recent times, he has had to start turning away from death and back towards life as he documents so powerfully in his new brilliant blog, Man Alive. To this point, Ben, you have said, I had found myself sadistically attracted to my heartbreaking past. I now need to be emotionally committed to building a joyful future. 
to have aspirations to step into the sun and write from the light side of life rather than hiding in the shadows and storytelling in the dark. I need to have an identity as a man and not just as a widower. So Ben, as we segue both literally and emotionally between the life of a widower and you as a man alive, I just wanted to start our conversation today by just asking how you are today, Ben. I'm actually really good today. And as you said, Jess, it's nearly eight years to the day. It was a couple of days ago, actually, Desiree's eighth um, anniversary. And usually um, I plan to go into it really positive. It's not going to be as bad this year. And every year gets me. Um, but I took some action this year. I decided uh, being in lockdown 2.0, I was going to um, uh, use it to my advantage. This mm. is, you know, I work in an industry where I'm usually entertaining clients and things like that around now. And I thought this is an opportunity to not drink, to, uh, you know, use that body coach plan that I bought about two and a half years ago, never <laughs> logged into and um, just kind of be as positive as possible. Like let my system be positive. So mm. it really worked for me actually. Um, and actually I just got a message uh, to say that um, I've been named on a list of diversity consultants. It's my kind of, it's a career that I went into more recently. I've been in PR for most of my life and I've been named in the top 20 diversity consultants oh, in the world. Ben, <laughs> so it's a good day, you know. It's a good in day. the world, bloody <laughs> hell. <laughs> so Congratulations, it's a good day. that's amazing. Thank you very much. Yeah, amazing. It's, it's different every year. And um, I think I really appreciate the question, how am I today? Because how are you? It's too broad a question mm. for most people that have gone through the kind of pain that we've gone through. Mm. Ben, I hear you so, I mean, there's this the most powerful current that runs through everything that you do around this just absolute commitment to, to choosing life. And I wonder if you could speak to us a little bit more about that. It's really interesting, actually, Jess, because when I heard you reading those words, then they were obviously mine. But I was like, oh, Jess is so articulate. This is great. Like, where she find these words? And then it, They're it all yours, then babe. I, then I, <laughs> <laughs> I realised they were mine. But I mean, it, it, it was kind of shocking because I don't remember writing them. Um, I, and um, mm. I think when you when well, when I spoke about stepping back into the light, I was like, wow, that's quite um, it's it's quite dramatic. And it feels like a different me. Um, I very, very rarely go back to my old writing. Um, it's not really for me. It's for other people, I think, to dip into and think, am I in a similar place or is this helpful to me? And I think that notion of me making a decision to come back to life is distant now because I live that instead of trying to live it. I think all of the words were an attempt to either articulate myself, um, understand and check in with who I was and how I was feeling, or like deliberate moves to try to get to a different space. But I can happily say now that I'm in that space. And uh, um, those words do, they do seem dramatic to me. They do seem like they're not mine. Um, it's fascinating and I'm so glad I've got them because at mm. some point I'll be able to look back and think, I've really been able to um, get to a different space. In fact, there was probably one of the most meaningful passages that I wrote for myself um, was something called Grief Gauge. It's in both. It's on both my blog and it's a chapter in my book. It was about how soon after Desiree died, 
I took my son Jackson, our son Jackson, to um, Crystal Palace Park. We went quite often. And there was one day I was there and I thought, I was looking at him play. He looked really happy. I looked and I thought, you know what? I'm never going to be happy again. I can't even be happy at his smile. And then I went back about a month later and I thought, do you know what? I feel a, a different, not better, but just different. And I thought, I'm going to use this. I'm going to come back at the same time every month and see how I feel. Mm. So it became a, my grief gauge. It became a way of checking in on myself. And I realise now, and since hearing you say those words just then, that everything is a grief gauge. Every mm. year that passes is an opportunity to check in and think. Like when the flowers arrive that my best friends send me every year, I could see them with joy this year. You know, I didn't see them and think those flowers symbolise something awful. I just saw mm. them for what they were. So I think, um, yeah, just having those little, uh, those little things that let you understand how you are and how you're doing are, are important. I think it's such an interesting thing you're talking about then, Ben, which is almost like having a kind of self, sort of almost like a self-assessment of, 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 of progress and sort of a very conscious checking in with yourself, which... Mm. Um, which I think must be a very, very wonderful tool, actually. And I, um, but, you know, I, I also think there's there's something around, you know, the kind of unruly, disobedient parts of grief, which don't move, um, don't move in a linear way, you know. And so you can have, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, my, my, my interest in, in, in grief and loss loss comes through losing my mum and you know I've I it's two and a half years since she died and um I had one of the lowest times that I've had about a month or so ago um and it completely blindsided me <laughs> um this kind of not the, the non-linear nature of grief is is very disorientating sometimes do, do, do you think yeah I, I completely agree and I think that there's so much that's been written about grief that's been misunderstood and misrepresented and then like recycled as the norm, these stages of grief that um, appear to be linear. Because I think until you've grieved, you expect things to be linear, you expect progress. Mm. But actually, someone um, I know um, um, once described it as like a tangled ball of elastic bands or like a tangled ball of string it just goes all over the place. It loops back on itself. You don't know when it's going to come. There isn't linear progress. I had much the same as you. I think that when um, Desmond died in November, I started writing publicly in the January. And so I found a purpose that spurred me on mm. and I became addicted to it, I think. Um, I preferred writing and sharing with the world to talking to a human being. And I think there was part of it that was like the interaction that I got back, which people do get addicted to. I think mm. in social media, how many likes have you got? All of this sort of thing. And that seems really vacuous. And it was actually because I felt like this addiction to it. Like I got all of this and then I thought I need to write something out there and go again. But I realized how empty it was when I, you know, like when I paused, it hadn't done anything to me. It hadn't moved anything on. It was just a tiny distraction. It was, it was a, it was a glass of wine. It was whatever, you know, it was the same as just whatever you might take to distract yourself. And, um, and that, yeah, when, when I stopped being fulfilled by that new sense of purpose, 
which happened occasionally. There's a pattern in the blog of me going, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm. Two months later, back again, I'm not doing this anymore. But it was when I didn't want to get out of bed. Um, and I recognized it really quickly. I knew I was in trouble. I came downstairs one day. My mother-in-law was here looking after my son. And I looked awful. I mean, I tried to look awful. Um, it was, I wanted people to see what if what it looked like on the inside. So mm. I started wearing like baggy clothes, stuff that I wouldn't wear. Like I want, I bought stuff that already looked old. I grew a beard. Um, I'm wearing glasses now, but I didn't need glasses at the time. And I wanted them. <laughs> I just wanted anything that would sort of make my face look less than it was before. And I woke up this morning and uh, my mother-in-law asked me how I was. She didn't need to ask me because she could see. And I said, I'm not good. You know, I need, I need help. And um, I got up and I walked straight to the doctor's surgery and I spoke to the receptionist who knew the story, who knew who I was, I guess. Mm. She saw me and she just pulled me straight away and I saw a doctor straight away. Now I live in South East London. <laughs> mm. I can't get an appointment for a doctor on the NHS for three weeks. I was in there immediately um, and I needed, I needed some sort of resolution. And that was probably about, I don't know, maybe 18 months, two years in. So, mm. you know, from the writing, and I think it's really important for people to understand this. I'm not only this person that wrote those words. I, you know, these, the people that can't articulate themselves might see a person that is, in inverted commas, strong or, you know, dealing with things better than they are. I'm all the things between the sentences as well. I'm all the things between the words. Like I'm all the things I'm describing now and I always have been. Mm. So like, even if I had the strength to go, and I say again in inverted commas, cause I don't like the notion of strength. For me, strength is as much about vulnerability as anything else. But if mm. I had the wherewithal to, you know, drag myself onto into a TV studio or radio studio or write a book or whatever, or run a marathon even, that was just my way of coping with things in those moments. Like mm. I was, broken as well in those mm. spaces between the writing I was broken and I was in pieces Ben you know I think I think what you're expressing there is that you know the the nature of grief at its most absolute ravaging is it's the space between every living part of you it's the space between every thought every breath every atom of your being Mm. and it's not just the moments in which you you manage to express it <laughs> mm. it's it's quite often i mean it's it's the space between it's the space between everything mm. and um it's the dealing with yourself you know yeah um someone i know um their partner died recently and we were speaking about um how hard it was she was telling me how hard it was from, you know, like an advert had come on the TV uh, that reminded her of him and a song, you know, you know what it's like, everything reminds you. And I was saying that it's interesting because I was having um, a conversation with my son about it and how those memories were like a dark cloud. And then suddenly they stopped being that. Or, I mean, I can't say they stopped being that. They, they have recently not been that. They might be dark clouds again. But I can uh, truly say now that there's certain moments when I can hear Desreen's reaction to things. I can hear what she would have said. 
and um and it's amazing you know like she's she's back in the room and i can i i i'm kind of there but that's because i knew her so well you know so th there's light in there as well and and i and it's sort of it's a bit weird but sometimes when people say oh she would have been so proud of you or she would have said this or she would have said that i think she wouldn't have said those things. <laughs> <laughs> She'd have said something like rude or cheeky mm. or funny or sarcastic, or she'd have given me a look, or she would have found the person that's telling me what she would have said really mm. funny. You know, she would have like, cause I know, and I can, and I can imagine. So in some respects, I don't really need anyone to tell me what she'd think he, it, it, as well intentioned as it is and as sweet as it can be. I sort of know, like I, I, I know that, she would have hated <laughs> the public profile of everything that sort of happened. You know, that was a decision mm. that I made. I, I decided that I was going to honour her and make something good come of her, her premature death mm. by trying to let it help other people. Mm. She would have hated the profile. She would have hated every picture. <laughs> or she wouldn't have hated every picture, but she would have been like, I can't, this pitch, this picture shouldn't be in the paper. You should have chosen this one. You know? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think that, um, you know, what's happened over time as it, as it softened is that I'm able to remember her and recall her. And she's just there sometimes, you know, um, in her commentary. Uh, in everyday things particularly when it comes to our son like he'll he'll in fact he asked me last night uh, I put a film on we've not watched anything together for ages and he sat and jabbered all the way through it I kept pausing and said are we watching this film yeah. <laughs> you know like parents do <laughs> and um and he said dad expecting a really sweet answer he goes where's the where's the first place you took me when I was a baby and I went, oh, that's easy. We took you to the pub. Yeah. <laughs> and he went, you the lot. The profound and the ordinary always side by side. <laughs> yeah, he goes, you lot are dreadful parents, is what he said to me. <laughs> and then I just thought about it, she, her walking into the pub that day, because obviously he was a few days old. He's got no mm. chance of remembering it. She was like, is this really bad? Is this terrible? Is it, should we do this? And I was going, no, no, this is what all parents do. What else are we going to do? We need to get out of the house. So, um, yeah, but it was just nice to be able to hear her voice in my head and see her smile mm. and stuff like that. And that's the um, that is one of the benefits of time. And I think, you know, Ben, the, this just going back to this, this thing of how you you turn up choosing, choosing life every single day is I think is so connected to to the purpose mm. with, you know, and, and, and with which you you have lived this experience and I, and I also think and I and I, I definitely know this to be true of my own that that there's something very transformational around the power of purpose and how it kind of transforms what other feels like otherwise feels like you know um insurmountable amounts of agony <laughs> into yeah. something which actually has quite a, a, a dynamic life force mm. to it and and I and I just see that in, in in every aspect of what what you do and it's and it is extraordinary Ben and um I know sometimes people don't get told these things about themselves but but it truly is you know and and what that means I mean I know I know it served a purpose for you in a very kind of practical way in some senses but what it's done for other people too is is absolutely huge and so I hope I do hope you know that um I heard you you say recently that you were 
asked for a a radio interview to clarify a a few points on on who you are and you said you said something which I thought just was so brilliant you said it's a question I ask myself sometimes having thought I knew exactly who I was for a while after my wife died I've never been exactly sure ever since am I what's on the inside or what people see am I how I feel or what I achieve am I how I live at home or how I function at work and is there any difference these days? And it and it just made me think about this, you know, this this really existential thing that grief does to you, which is, you know, who who are you? Who are we now beyond these beyond our loss? You know, how you know, and how or why should we be a version of ourselves without it? Um, you know, when 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 it becomes such a huge part of who we are. And I just would, would love to kind of hear your thoughts on that. First of all, I need to get much better at acknowledging when people say kind things. So thank you mm. uh, for everything you've said. That's really kind. I, I, I think that I've begun to understand that who you are isn't defined either. Like it is, um, it changes. Um, yeah, there's elasticity to it. Yeah, that's yeah, so true. Yeah, I think, you know, like I, I turned 40 last year. I'm 41. But when I turned 40, I was I was dreading it like everyone is or everyone does. And um, then it came around. Uh, I, I wasn't doing anything for it. It wasn't the 40th that I had planned. It wasn't what we had planned. So I was just going to reject it. I'm not having a party, which I, I look back at now and I was like, shame on you because the people that haven't been allowed to have one because of, you know, COVID-19 this year. I was like, I'm really glad I did. I, I went through with it and I had a great time. But I looked back over the 10 years that I'd had and I wrote about that and I looked at all the pictures and I did some mm. like boards of each year and, and, and how they'd felt. And I summed them all up in, in one adjective um, each year. And um, I realised how much I'd changed, uh, how much the opportunities in life had changed and continue to. So like at 33, Desiree died. Uh, um 34 I ran a marathon at 35 I published a book at like 38 I changed my career and I changed my purpose throughout all of that as well so I was very much campaigning around um uh opening up a conversation around uh male grief and men grieving and articulating Mm. themselves and, and opening up about it and then one day I just decided when we went through the court case um, for the driver that killed my wife mm. when I listened to actually what happened when I listened to the science of what happened the, mm. the medical you know nature of what happened to his body to cause this death I was like now I understand it now I can go and talk about older people driving and mm. and, and what the boundaries around that should be because I know the science and so then I turned my attention to that mm. and then I turned it you know, back to um, male grief. I made a documentary with Rhea Ferdinand. Mm, and it's it, amazing, and it... Ben. And I think there's something so, you know, I do think there's something around, you know, when you go through a a loss which changes your life absolutely beyond recognition, I do think there's something around sort of embracing wholesale radical change, mm. Um, mm. which somehow feels more natural. 
you yeah. know, and to, to kind of move through kind of more rapid cycles of, of, of change feels much more natural than trying to kind of hold life as it was, you know, I think is much, mm. you know, definitely for me, it was much more painful. I think, you know, a world, a life which has a, a huge loss as one of its centers of gravity, um, wholesale, big radical change makes much more sense in a life where you've experienced loss. But I think you kind of, you almost bring on big, bold changes around you to help kind of help position the kind of, the kind of brutal nature of that change in a slightly more normalized way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I've definitely summed it up this way before. It's like, what's the worst thing that can happen when the worst thing that's already happened, you know, in a sense, it's really liberating because Mm. you're like, I can't feel any worse, you know, like, and actually I think that I have tended to be a person that acts on intuition and has always Mm. told myself, well, you've not made a terrible decision yet, so just go for it. <laughs> and 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 so I don't know if this is age or I don't know what it is, but some like a risk aversion. Um, I, I'm less, I'm more risk averse suddenly. Like I'm like, oh, that seems like really, really edgy to do that thing. Mm. But you know, when I've make it, when I've made a decision since Desreen died, I've made it really quickly and I've just acted on it. And then a year later, I'm just in that decision. You know, I'm not sat there Mm. thinking, oh God, that was bad. You know, like I've walked out of jobs. I've started a new career. I've put myself on the line publicly for a few things. And I'm like, oh God, I'm here again. (laughs) But Mm. I just think that's growth. And I think it's evolution, it's change. And I think it's also, um, you know, I, I, my experience of, of grieving, I, I would describe more as a kind of intense kaleidoscope of different colours of feeling. You know, it's a supercharged spectrum of lots of lots of different colours of feeling. And, you know, and I think within that, you know, it supercharges everything. It supercharges the flatlining, it supercharges the, also the kind of the gratitude for the things you do still have do you know what I mean it supercharges the the kind of intent to, to live and to live fiercely mm. you know and I, and I really hear that in what you're saying and just to go back to, to something you, you mentioned a, a minute ago Ben which I which is other it's a really really um really bit of important work you've, you've been doing that I'd, I would love to discuss a little bit more which was you know both through the, the story telling that you've done and then obviously with this brilliant um work you've you've done with Rio Ferdinand as well you've done some really really important work on spotlighting and deconstructing what you've experienced to be the kind of masculine modeling of strength in grief um which which you have said for you was about um kind of compressing and, and pushing down the grief as opposed to having sort of permission to allow space to be with it and um in in your book you you describe that you know the the unwritten rule seemed to be to shut up man up and hide your pain um and this is something you described as as your madness in in inverted commas that that set in just a couple of days after Desreen died and and I'd really love for you to tell us a bit a bit more about that yeah so what I can understand now is that no one I knew had gone through anything like this. I mm. was young, not a, you know, 
gladly none of my friends had gone through anything like this and my you know I was fortunate in that my my parents are still together you know um I've got two older siblings but they've not gone through anything like this and yet I was being told inadvertently how to behave by everyone Mm. and when you're really fragile you'll take whatever you're given you know so I kept being told either to be strong or that I was strong so it was either an instruction to do something that I was like well okay well I must listen to you then because I don't know what I'm doing Mm. or um, praise and I was like okay so either way this is the only way strength and so I took that on and it didn't take me long to unravel and realize that isn't me it's never been me this like need to be macho or need to be inherently masculine you know in the old-fashioned sense and I was like this is just doesn't make any sense so then and what I, did that require of you at the time if you could identify it it, it Actually, one of the things it meant was to keep supporting everybody else. Um, mm. I was That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I I actually think that I'm like a naturally quite servile person, and I do what I can to make everyone happy and to make everyone comfortable. So if you've been to a party at my house, you know about it because you know there's attention to detail, and your mm. glass is never going to be empty, and you're not going to be hungry or anything like that. Um, but so what happened when Des died was that I was worried about everybody else and I was making sure everyone else was okay. Mm. And a few people noticed and said like, who's looking after you? And then when I realized that that's what was happening, I started to get quite angry with people because I thought, yeah, you're right. Like who is looking after me? Mm. Cause everyone was just going, oh, this is his reaction to it. Okay. So we can, and you know, and this went on for quite a while. It went on till after the funeral and one of Desi's aunties said, called me the next day or texted me the next day, I can't remember, and said, thanks for yesterday. Um, everyone needed what you gave them. Because I stood up and did like a 15-minute eulogy without a tear, but with half a bottle of rum and a Valium inside me mm. to prevent any of it. And it was like, it was the best speech I've ever given. It was going to be, it was always going to be. Like, this is the mo- this is where I was then. This is what mattered to me. And then I was like, this is not strength because it's chemically enhanced. I don't mean it. I'm dying inside. Mm. Actually, what's it going to take for me to feel actually strong or authentic is probably a better word. Mm. And that was vulnerability. It was admitting how I really felt. And it was telling Mm. people and it was putting two fingers up to anyone that didn't want to hear it. And it was like, okay, it was challenging the norms. It was going... Uh, and saying I don't believe that there aren't other men who feel like me because I'd stay up at night and I'd search for them I'd go I'd I'd put my son to bed and then I'd go to bed and I wouldn't sleep I'd just look for people that had gone through the same thing and no one Mm. was talking there was no one talking it's hard to believe this now because we've gone through Prince William Prince Harry um, you know we've gone through Rio Ferdinand we've gone through all of this talk about mental health since and depression and mm. the, the the male conversation has come on leaps and bounds in the last few years but it wasn't being spoken then and I was mm. like okay I'm gonna do it then and one of my close friends came around um, because on January the 1st 
so Des died on November the 10th, January the 1st came. And I, probably because I'd always worked in PR, I was got like this new year, new you cliche in my head. Not because I realized, thought I could flick a switch and be a different person, but because I thought I'm going to have to stop saying on Facebook how I feel, you know, mm. to, to sort of just my inner circle, because people are going to get sick of hearing about it. January the 2nd, I was like, I can't show up. I'm not ready to show up. I just have to show up to them. <laughs> One of my friends came around to the flat and said, um, I said, I think I'm going to start this blog. And I told him why. And he just went, you know what, just do it. You've never made a bad decision before. Just go for it. Mm. And it just blew up from there. Because and that, like, was, that, was, that, was, that was two months after Des died, wasn't it? Yeah. But Ben, there's something really, you're, 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 you're tapping into something here, which um, I haven't heard expressed in quite this way before which I think is really interesting and it and it is also problematic for grieving people which is that is this you know and I've heard you talk about you know this thing you find yourself raging against the cliches around loss and you know that I, I do think that you know this whole thing around be strong is one of those platitudes um, and you know the question I I kind of want to ask really is you know do you think people's reflex to say be strong or you are strong or what or whatever way in which they load that upon you um you know is that is is that a symptom of kind of lack of shared language and therefore people just resorting to to cliches and platitudes because they don't they literally don't have the other words that they don't have other words to to use literally um because i think our language on grief is so unevolved and and um uh which is why so often it just kind of buckles on people buckle into the inexpressible on it or is it because you know people just do find it too difficult to hold eye contact with the very messy kind of gore really of very raw grief and actually people's kind of requirement for us to be strong is 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 kind of just as much for them as it is well it's probably more for them than it is for us and that's a difficult thing to say um and I'm sure it's not the same in every instance but I can feel you kind of I can feel you stepping towards that and what you're saying yeah I think there's uh, there's two or three things that come into play I think there's um nature and education are, are two things that spring to mind i think like naturally we recoil from pain you know every animal mm. recoils from pain so like throwing yourself into it isn't usual behavior um education or lack of around how to what grief is and how to help people is another thing so when mm. people stand there it doesn't matter how amazing they've been the rest of your life or how decent that person is. That person can suddenly, in your eyes, fail because they yeah. can't show up. They can't meet whatever expectation. You might not even know you have of them, but you need something. And I think it's either, in my experience, it was platitudes because they're, they're all, you know, it's all it's like TV playing out. It's like film playing out. Even when the guy told me, the policeman said that Des was dead, I looked at him and I was like, you're that guy off the bill. You're not a real police officer. Like it didn't seem real. And then so when people talk, you'd hear the same things again and again, the same platitudes. And it's because people haven't stopped to challenge their own behavior or what they could actually say or do. 
and I think that you know the, the things that I've shared is that this is your time to take some action rather than lean on the other person so I think one of the most common comments when someone when something bad happens to anyone but particularly when they're grieving is let me know if I can do anything for you I mean it sounds so innocent but when someone is broken and they've got nothing left to give the last thing they need is to be told that they need to tell you what to do for you you know if that makes sense so okay I've just heard a hundred people say this and in order for them to feel better I need to give them a job otherwise they haven't got what they needed from me and I'm the one that needs it mm. so okay you do this you do that it's like no I'm exhausted just do something or do nothing mm. just uh, stop talking about it so there's a million things you can do you can come and clean my bathroom you can go shopping and leave some food on the doorstep. You know, I still remember the people that did this the most and they're not even, they weren't even significant people in my life or so massively significant people in my life before. But, you know, I think that just people don't understand what that person needs. But if they could imagine just someone, maybe if they could just imagine someone that had a broken leg, they'd know how to step up then. They'd know how to go, okay, this person can't walk themselves to the shop. Yeah. Is something I'll do. I think if they could imagine them in a, if they could empathize with something rather than reach to something that they've never experienced, it would be much easier to help grieving people. Yeah. What was the most helpful thing people did, helpful things people did for you? Uh, play with my son. Mm. Um, mm, because I didn't have, I didn't have it. He was two years old. Mm. It's repetitive play then. You know, he was obsessed with Thomas the Tank Engine. He just wanted to play trains all the time, mm. all the time. <laughs> and yeah, adults would come round ostensibly to help. But they were being helped by their presence there. You know, that was mm. their way of grieving. They were grieving together. And inevitably, like, the wine would open and be poured. And all of a sudden, we weren't in a child-friendly dynamic. We were just in adults grieving together dynamic and I'm like well when you go he still needs reading to he still needs bathing he still needs playing with so the people that came and did that were of more value to me than than anyone else really because to be honest at the time I think this is probably true of any you know committed parent I could deal with myself later I know that that I, I wouldn't recommend mm. that you know but in my, yeah, my yeah. mind was logically say I can deal with me later that the real problem here is a two-year-old who will never see his mom again. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mm, not bad. I mean, this... Um... I mean, this is the whole other dimension to your to your to your story and your experience, which is that you know overlaid with, you know the the the, the acute nature of your own experience of grief. You've also, you know, as you say, been required as Jackson's amazing dad to to shepherd him through his own experience, which, of course, you know, both for a child and for a, a child of the age that he was when his mummy died. It was a very complex thing and now I've heard you speak you know so powerfully about this process and particularly that of Jackson's own voice emerging to express his experience um, and I just was wondering if you'd be happy to tell us a bit more about that. It's, um, it's, a, it, it, it's a long story <laughs> because if you think about you know you've got kids and mm. you, the, the difference between two and ten which he is now is vast mm. you know we now talk about his mom every day he asks me questions you know and he laughs about the answers um but when he was two having to explain to him I didn't realize that I was gonna have to do it more than once <laughs> you know if you think about like repetitive play and repetitive learning it's the same thing so when I sat and told him what had happened calmly, you know, not when he was asking, not when he was in tears, he asked me, I told him at bedtime, I told him what had happened. I can literally recite the words off the top of my head now. Um, but um, over time, um, I realized because we'd been so open about it and because I'd been uh, quite directional with other adults in his life about how I wanted them to talk to him about it. Mm. he's had consistency and so I don't know I mean I expect things will get harder again because he's you know he they will anyway you know he'll hit puberty he'll be a teenager everything's going to be hard again um but in a different way and so um yeah but what I really realized uh, um last year um yeah I think it was last year it feels like much longer ago but it was definitely last year um I, as you mentioned earlier, uh, chair this task force called Life Matters, which is a task force for, for uh, fighting for better government support of bereaved families. And we'd written this report and I presented it at the House of Commons and we campaigned a lot. And then like Brexit kicked in uh, and it was like it dropped down the agenda. And then, you know, so last year we tried to make like a softer impact around Children's um, Grief Awareness Week. Um, and uh, we had this idea to create this book called Lost for Words, which was uh, which tapped into this insight that not all children have actually got the words to explain grief. Mm. 
for many different reasons. The most fundamental really being age, you know, like if a child can't talk yet, then they can't tell you how they feel. But actually it might be out of disability or, or, or a number of other factors, you know. So we had this idea to write this book, which asked children to give bereaved children to give other bereaved children advice, like what they've learned in the process in words and emojis. And this idea came about because when Jackson was really little and I wasn't with him, he used to borrow his grandparents' phone and he'd text me with like loads and loads of emojis. And I, at, the, at the start, I just thought, oh, it's nothing, you know, it's just it's random. But then I realized that there was consistency and he was actually telling me stories about how he felt, but without no. the words. <laughs> So we had this idea yeah. and we asked everybody that contributed. It was a crowdsource book. We asked everyone to contribute um, some advice and a corresponding emoji. And then uh, my best friend's business designed it and uh, we were ready to go. It was like free to download a uh, book from my blog and all of the different charities that were involved. And then uh, it got quite a bit of media attention. We got about four TV interviews. And on the first one, we got to, to Sky. And it's miles from my house, Sky. They sent a taxi and I was like, Jackson, we're going to be on. You're coming with me. And I was feeling like I didn't know whether to put him through it. He was only just nine. And um, this was about a year ago. Yeah, it was a year ago. Mm. And, um, and he came to the studio and they, they mic'd me up. And I was like, oh, what about Jackson? And they went, oh, no, we don't let um, kids on the news. And I went, oh, right. We've been in a cab for like an hour and a half. I've taken him out of school for this. I, yeah. I really think you ought to. Not because I want him to be, you know, have any profile. I was quite worried about it, but I thought he's going to be so annoyed with me if he's come all this way. I was like, listen, just do it. Just do it. <laughs> he went into the studio and the amount of messages I got afterwards going, oh my God, I've never seen a man so overshadowed. <laughs> he was amazing. But what a lot of people saw was just like an articulate child, actually a funny child, because the, the interviewer asked... Um, you know, if I, if I, it was a woman and it was a bit cliched in, in a sense, a bit stereotypical because she sort of implied, she was asking whether I could cook and whether I could clean and use the washing machine, all stuff I could do long before Desiree died. I was better at those things than she was. Um, <laughs> and he looked at her and went, him, him, he doesn't do anything. I do everything <laughs> around the house. <laughs> it's Brilliant. not even nearly true. But the point for me was I, I had so much pride because I looked and thought, he has sat there and talked about the death of his mum. He's articulated his own grief as a nine-year-old and he's made people laugh. He's done it with a smile on his face. It's like, oh how incredible. God. That's the incredible thing, that he's been able to learn that behaviour and be okay with talking about it and not close mm. down, which was the old way. You know, like, it, you know, I've, I, my mum would tell me stories that, like, just made me shiver about how friends of hers were told that one of their parents had died or actually not told more specifically, told that they'd run, been, that they'd run off with someone else. You know, they, did, they weren't even yeah. actually told. You know, it's kind of like it's sort of between... Archaic the, madnesses. Madness. And mm. yet there's my child, like, completely in control of the message. And I, I've seen it before. I went to pick him up from school one day and he was at, well, he was at after school club. I was playing table tennis with this kid I'd never seen before. And this kid looked up and went, like, looked at me and went, where's your mum? And he went, she's dead. See you tomorrow. And he just left. And I was like, it was shocking to hear. Mm. But at the same time, I was like, he owns the narrative. He's mm. in control. Wow. Um, and I think that that's what him and he and I have wanted to do for other kids is 
help them understand that that's okay and help give children a voice. So I think it started for me from a very personal standpoint of wanting to give men a voice. And then as Jackson's voice grew and he became older and more articulate, I was like, this could help other kids too. And, you know, we've had a go, we, we, we've written and we've actually written a book together. It's really hard though, because we've, we've written a book that's about how to retain the memories of someone that's died. It's a happy book about grief, which doesn't fit a mold. And it's actually about a child instead of a badger or a bear. I, you know, I took this to, I took this book to one publisher and they said they were hoping for something more oblique. I was like, okay, so you mean that you don't want us to be honest about death to children, which is the opposite of what parents want when, mm. uh, when someone's died for a child, they, they need honesty. And I think that that, shows how society is around death it's like that's the perception when you haven't been there you think it's that you think people need other things you, you you're happy to say oh kids are resilient which actually means i don't really need to bother about this child's grief because they'll get over it themselves mm. it's avoidance they're still Beast standing rock, on two feet you know, physically <laughs> and so all of the things we yeah. talked about about like people avoiding your grief as an adult or not choosing not to find the language or find the support it's everywhere it's mm. everywhere it's in kids it's in it's avoidance and it's like every charity every child bereavement charity that i work with every expert that i speak to says the the key is consistency and honesty yeah not yeah. badges and beavers talking about things in an oblique way it doesn't work so then um I wonder if you so part of part of the part of what we really want to do in this series is to build out is is to use it as an opportunity to build out a, a kind of rich tapestry of language to start to express this often too this is too often inexpressible thing called grief and you know each of our guests are just doing that so beautifully and we're also asking each guest every episode to to bring a piece of writing or a piece of advice a piece a poet anything at all that for them they feel has articulated their grief for them but through the words of another and I wonder what you wanted to bring to the conversation for us today um I, this certainly wasn't about articulating grief, but it was about me being able to articulate myself to the people that I cared about most. So when I talked mm. about kind of, uh, I suppose, the anger I felt, frustration I felt towards people for putting a lot on me, or that at least that's how it felt. I found this, um, I found this article on the website of a um, charity called Care for the Family. Mm. Um, and it was so uh, integral to my response that it's actually at the it's published at the back of my book. Mm, um, now right. it was it was a list of uh, do's and don'ts of how to help people, young bereaved people that have lost a partner. And it was uh, when I got it, I'd sent an email to the, the you know like the most important significant people in my life, and just went right. I know you're all trying to help. Here's all of the things that you can do. Don't ask me again. Mm. Do them or don't but they're all here and now it's your decision. I'm tired. Mm. And I sent that and it, and it massively helped. And over the years, people have gone, that really helped me. As they, they've said it's really helped me as well because mm. they then knew what to do. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that um, was, was hugely significant, yeah. And would you be able to read it for us? I'll just read you like two do's and two don'ts. Okay. 
um, how you can help those widowed young, things I'd like you to know. Do talk to me, even if you don't know what to say. Knowing you're a sorry is a good start. Do keep in touch. Keep phoning, especially as weeks turn into months and years. Be available. Do talk about my partner. I love to hear um, your memories of her. And then there's a few don'ts. Don't avoid me. It hurts so much when you cross the road, when you see me coming rather than willing to face me. Don't mm -hmm. phone and, and just say, let me know if I can help and leave it at that. Don't worry about feeling awkward. Be normal yourself, my friend. I'm still the same person. And there's, I don't know, there's 30 do's and don'ts. So wow. if you can't find the words, you can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ben, thank you so much. So to play ours out, um, if it was possible to choose a song to dedicate to um, your story, what would that be and why? It's got to be uh, Finally by the Kings of Tomorrow. Um, it was our first uh, dance at our wedding mm. and we hadn't decided until the morning of the wedding. I was driving away from the venue and she was driving towards it and we both heard it on the radio and we were like, this is it. And we texted <laughs> each other at the same time and we said, we found it. And w we thought it was about finally meeting the one that you love um, and when I played it at her funeral 14 months after it occurred to me that it's actually about meeting God uh, whether you believe or not the words are about meeting God um, and so it just resonates on every single level it was a hugely happy and significant song on our wedding day and then it was one of the saddest songs I've ever heard on the day she died oh Ben bless you Okay, so here we have it, finally, by the Kings of Tomorrow. Ben, thank you. Thank you.
Thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to rate, review and subscribe to us on your podcast app, then please do. And you know the score, five stars, please. If you'd like to come and say hello on Instagram, then you can find me and all things human podcast related at This Is Jess Mills. This podcast was created and hosted by me, Jess Mills, with creative co-production by Bonnie Tyburn and produced by Joel Porter at dot dot dot. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.